everyone and welcome to Thrive Podcast. I'm your host Hannah Edwards. Now I'm just your average health and fitness enthusiast with a passion to learn as much as I can about the mind and body and hopefully educate some of you guys listening too. In this podcast we'll bring you episodes with many inspirational guests. We'll give you an insight into the lives of these influencers, their struggles, their successes and how they got to where they are today. With the help of my guests we will give you insights into subjects such as mental health, fitness, personal development, mindset and so much more. So let's find out how you can thrive in your life too. Hello everyone and welcome back to episode 10 of the Thrive Podcast. Today we are joined by psychiatrist Sarah Vera, otherwise known as the Mind Medic. On this episode we talk about subjects in mental health which are far too often not shared. Sarah explains her experiences with working with people with anxiety, depression and eating disorders. She talks about what it is that makes us feel this way, what triggers in our minds to make us have these anxious emotions, as well as how she works with her clients on getting them better for good. Finally, Sarah explains the reasons why we should never be afraid to speak about our mental health, because we are never alone. There is always someone else going through the same thing who understands. A problem shared is a problem halved. I'm really excited about this episode as I know there will be a lot of people who may be going through something similar and are scared to talk about it. So please enjoy the podcast. Hi Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on episode 10 now of the Thrive Podcast. I'm so excited to be speaking to you and I can't wait for the listeners to hear what you have to say. So before we get started, can you tell everyone a bit about you, what you do for a living and your background? Yeah, so my name's Sarah Bora. Thank you for inviting me firstly for the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, I'm a psychiatry trainee, a senior trainee. Um, I graduated from medical school in 2008. So when you graduate from med school, you have to do sort of two years general doctoring. So you rotate around different specialties, so different medical specialties, mm-hmm. um, different surgical specialties. And um, I actually got the opportunity to do psychiatry within that. Mm-hmm. And I've always been interested in psychiatry, even when I was in med school, I think second year we had a psychiatrist come to speak to us in one of our lectures and it was so, so inspirational. And, you know, just some of the stuff that he was talking about, about it being sort of holistic care and focusing on the whole person and not just a symptom, just really rung true for me. And I thought, actually, this is something that I want to do long term. Mm. So I did a placement, a four month placement um, in general psychiatry um, in, in those two years. And then I decided to apply to specialise in psychiatry. So I've been specialised in psychiatry since 2010. And um, I have been, then you can sort of sub-specialise within that. So you can do sort of general psychiatry, old age mm-hmm. psychiatry, substance misuse, forensics, there's loads, um, yeah. child psychiatry, learning disability. Um, but I chose child psychiatry. And I think it's because during my general psychiatry placements, I really enjoyed the fact that again you don't only just focus on the child mm-hmm. but everything from where that child lives you know mm-hmm. how they were born what the pregnancy was like for the mum how mm-hmm. all of that can impact on the child mm-hmm. um, and I just found it really fascinating I love working with whole families and child mm-hmm. psychiatry gives you the opportunity to do that. Wow so do you tell your expertise towards any sort of mental illness and or and how do you go about helping them do you like speak to them or yeah how does it work? Yeah, so within um, child psychiatry, so I'm in my senior training at the moment, and we rotate around different parts of child psychiatry. So already I've done a bit of inpatient psychiatry, so that's kind of the extreme end where it's not safe um, Mm -hmm. for 
for the ch child to be cared for in the community and they need a bit of a break from the community and to be treated in hospital yeah. and I've also done community psychiatry and also psychiatry with young offenders and um, children that substance misuse as well so mm -hmm. it covers a, a wide age range from literally zero from when they're born mm -hmm. up to the age of 18 right. and um, t I tend to sort of see them in clinics so we cover loads and loads of basically any mental health struggle so it could okay. be depression it could be psychosis or you know schizophrenia eating disorders anxiety and mm -hmm. um, body dysmorphia ptsd grief there's a whole host of um, mm -hmm. different conditions that we treat so we never really know what's going to come through the door from one from one person to the next and i guess from from every client that you have you learn from them and you learn how to deal with that client and when you when you go to one client you learn how you kind of helps them you can write how can i use this experience to help my next client. Yeah, and also with um, child psychiatry, and I think with psychiatry as a general rule, there's a real focus on team working. Yeah. So you're on the expertise of the people around you. So there's, you know, fantastic nurses that work around you. There's mm -hmm. occupational therapists that try and get the child reincorporated back into school. If say the anxiety symptoms are affecting them in school. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you always got other doctors. Um, it's a real, it's a real sort of team feeling about it. You have, you know, psychologists, family therapists. Mm. Um, so it's kind of drawing expertise from everyone. Um, yeah. That child back to sort of a normal level of functioning. Yeah, I guess it's it's for them realizing that there is people there to help them. It's not, it's not. They're not in a lonely world. There is people there to help, and if they talk about their feelings and express their feelings, and that's what's going to make them them better. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think a lot of the time you have to sort of you have to be comfortable with feeling uncomfortable as yeah. a clinician because a lot of the time you kind of expect I mean especially when I was doing my general medicine surgery I did a GP placement I was used to people coming through the door and saying will you look at my toe will you look you know I've got a horny tummy yeah. with um sort of psychological symptoms mental health symptoms you know people really really struggle um to open up about those it, you know in the first appointment and often it's the gp that first sees them trust um, well, isn't it? absolutely it's about yeah. trust and also a lot of the time you know the children are dragged there by their parents they don't necessarily want to get help or they don't necessarily see that there's a problem yeah. so it's trying to kind of adjust your communication style so that it's the sort of the safest environment um a comfortable environment for the kids to be able to open up to you themselves mm. Yeah. So when someone comes to you um, for help, how do you get into their mind and help them initially? So generally, um, I mean, it obviously varies wherever you work in the yeah. country, but generally, obviously, they would have had to see their GP or it might be that the school nurse or someone within schools might raise um, some concern about a child. And they'll probably have an initial assessment, firstly, by a community psychiatry nurse. Um, mm -hmm. That tends to be how it happens and then if there was you know felt to be sort of a medical need um or if the nurse was you know significantly concerned about that person then i would get involved yeah and sort of offer a second opinion um also that's kind of um making the assumption that actually all children come through the door via their gp but obviously you know if mm. the crisis point or if um you know someone's really really distressed it might be that they come through the door through A&E and I do see um, kids that present to A&E or that the parents are being really really frantic and don't know what to do with them and mm. take them to A&E or it might be that the police have found them wandering the streets or 
you know, concert or had to arrest them. Um, mm. And it might be that I get in that way. So there's loads and loads of different routes how they get to see a psychiatrist. Um, mm. Obviously, the one that's kind of a bit um, sort of more tangible is the going through your GP because I think in a crisis, everything seems sort of 10 times worse. Mm. Um, so that's how I would initially get involved. So my initial assessment would look at literally everything. So it would be, is this the first time that the child's seen a psychiatrist? Mm. Um, have they struggled with their mental health before? So it might be that they've never seen a psychiatrist before, but they've been to their GP countless times because you know, mom's concerned about a really low mood or whatever. Um, mm. So um, I would then look at sort of the backstory, any sort of medical conditions, because sometimes having um, physical health problems can impact on the child's mental health as well. Yeah. That's really important to know. Things like family history. So if there's a, a really strong family history of depression or bipolar, um, then that's really important because it, it's not a hard and fast rule that if you have a family history of, x y and z then that child will definitely go on to develop it yeah it's more likely that they will develop um, that sort of uh, mental health condition um and the other thing that child psychiatry really focuses heavily on is stuff like um the early history so we ask the mums and they have to really wrap their brains sometimes Mm. um, about their pregnancy what that was like things like whether they smoke or drank during their pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, what the sort of environment in the house was like, what the what the birth was like, was it traumatic? Do they have to have to spend time on a special care baby unit? Mm. All that which kind of thinks that feels like it's not really necessarily significant mm. actually is really important to the whole assessment. Right. The other thing is I see a lot of children that are in care or that are adopted or you know fostered. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's a bit of a missing link because we might not necessarily get that information. Yeah. Um, so all that is what we kind of focus on in the initial assessment. Um, things like drugs, drug use, you know, do they yeah. drink, um, who they live with, are they at school, um, and have they ever been in trouble with the police? So after the assessment, we kind of get an overall sense of what that person's level of functioning is like, you know, mm-hmm what does a typical day look like for them? What does a typical week look like? And we kind of get a bit of a sense of whether there's been a change in how they function. Because sometimes yeah. it might be that they were going to school, they had a, a really good relationship with family, they were a non-drinker, non-smoker, but then over the last few months, they've dropped out of school. You know, so it's kind of trying to see where the yeah, change happens and stuff. Yeah. No, absolutely. So a lot of people don't really understand what psychiatry is and they think it's kind of just like you go you go to a therapist and you speak to someone and, and they leave. Lie down on the couch. Lie down on the couch. How are you feeling today? What's going on? And they don't understand like the real ins and outs of it. So what is the difference between kind of going in and having therapy and actual your, your practice? Yeah, so I think people get really confused about what a psychologist does and what a psychiatrist yeah. does. Yeah. So... Firstly, going back to sort of the training, um, a, the sort of in terms of the degree that they do, a psychologist and psychiatrist are very different. So a psychologist um, will have gone and done a, a degree of psychology at university and then, and then sort of specialised within their particular area of psychology and got mm-hmm. further training, um, whether it's sort of on the CBT model or psychotherapy, family therapy. Whereas a psychiatrist like myself, um, I had to go to medical school um, for five years and, like I said, do the sort of the two years general doctoring mm-hmm. and then specialise in psychiatry. 
And the other thing that psychiatrists do differently from psychologists is that we can actually prescribe medication. So yes. if we were really concerned about someone, because in child psychiatry particularly, um, first and foremost, we, we always try to, to treat the condition using a talking therapy or psychology. So they would always, you know, wherever possible, always be seen by a psychologist um, or someone that could deliver some sort of therapy. Often, I, as a psychiatrist myself, I might deliver some sort of psychological therapy, particularly if there's a long waiting list. Yeah. Um, but the other added benefit of what I do is that I can prescribe medication. So if someone's really distressed, if their level of function is really poor and it's becoming clear that the psychology isn't working on its own, it yeah. might be that I can prescribe some medication to help alongside the psychology that they're receiving. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think there is a big difference and people don't, don't really realise. No, they don't. <laughs> so do you use, like, what sort of techniques do you use on someone, like, say we're moving kind of back to fitness, is someone's got um, an eating disorder, do you use mindfulness and CBT? So what sort of techniques would you use to help someone who's got an eating disorder? I think it's really difficult because um, eating disorder is such a broad umbrella term. So obviously yeah. eating disorder covers things from anorexia to bulimia. To also binge eating disorder mm. and depending on the eating disorder that you're faced with it it will you know affect the technique that you use i think the thing to say is about eating disorders is that it there's a better chance of sort of treatment recovery if they are treated with a specific eating disorder team and my you know i myself i'm not you know i don't work as part of an eating disorder team as such but mm. what i might do is a sort of a general psychiatrist is I might assess them and if it becomes clear that this person's got an eating disorder I'd refer them on to a specific eating disorder specialist who could look at things like their diet yeah. um, look at sort of medical treatment and also look at psychological like approaches and talking therapies things like anorexia so when someone's restricting their food um, they've lost a significant amount of weight they may have lost their periods if they're a girl mm. um, they might think that they're really fat um, the, the sort of talking therapies that work really well for anorexia is actually a family therapy, family therapy approach. Um, mm. Because actually what we find is with anorexia is it affects the whole family unit. Yeah. yeah. You know, the simple things such as mealtimes, family mealtimes can be hugely distressing for the young person and for the family. Mm. So it's about getting therapists involved to kind of help. And it might be that they do... Um, they observe um, family meal times. Um, mm -hmm. They sort of plan family meal times with a the therapist there. Um, in terms of bulimia, so when someone's binge eating and then over exercising or possibly vomiting or, or taking laxatives, um, the sort of approaches that tend to work really well is actually a combination of medication and uh, a talking therapy. Mm -hmm. um, the talking therapy for that would be CBT mm -hmm. um, and that cognitive behavioural therapy. And that really focuses in on looking at certain situations that trigger the binge, what the thought process is for the person that is binge eating, um, how they feel <laughs> eating, um, how, and then how they subsequently behave and looking at that cycle. Because it, it ends up being a bit of a vicious cycle. Yeah. That it might be that they, the situation could be that they're alone at night and they're thinking, I'm really fat. Um, you know, no one will want me, which will make them feel really sad and very low. They might choose food as their sort of comfort crutch. So that leads them to eat food and then they lose control, which mm -hmm. feeds into, I feel really rubbish, I feel fat, which makes them feel worse. Yeah. And it becomes this sort of vicious. 
So what's really good is actually CBT um, focuses on on that cycle and trying to to break the cycle. Yeah. Um, and binge eating similar again that it might be that they need to have a, a you know some medication or um, actually that they have the sort of the CBT as well. Mm. Um, but that tends to be. I mean, my role is I tend to signpost them onto a specific eating disorder specialist who would then um, assess them. Yeah. So I want to touch on a topic that's not really talked about is it can be a hard subject to talk about and open up about. And that's like anxiety. Yeah. And I think it is an umbrella term as well. It's for a lot. It's like, I feel, I feel anxious. I'm really anxious. I'm suffering with anxiety. Um, but people don't actually realise what it, what it is and panic attacks and things like that. Yeah. Can you tell everybody kind of what triggers in your mind to give us anxiety and why we get it? So, like you said, anxiety is a massive term. So it covers everything from sort of generalised anxiety mm-hmm. to panic attacks, panic disorders, things like agoraphobia, so fear of crowded places, mm-hmm. social phobia, where you know people are, you know, fearful of other people criticising them or putting themselves in a situation where they think other people are going to criticise them, um, and things like specific phobias. So it might be like a phobia of um, you know taking blood or spiders, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, I tend to see a lot of sort of generalised anxiety and um, panic disorders, which are two separate things. So generally, like you say, you know, every day we can all feel anxious. And actually, mm-hmm. feeling anxious is not a bad emotion no. to experience. Because if you think in the lead up to an interview or an exam, that anxiety can almost fuel you to, right, I've got to knuckle down, I've got to do my revision, I've got to yeah. focus. And actually can be quite a positive thing because it forces you to prep and to do what you're meant to be doing. Mm. But where anxiety becomes a problem where someone like myself would see someone is when it starts to get in the way of that person's level of functioning. So how they socialise with family and friends, their working and school life. So, you know, some of the people that I see have been so crippled by their anxiety that even getting up on a morning, doing the simplest thing like having breakfast, getting themselves off to work and school is the most is the most overwhelming of tasks and they can't yeah. physically do it um so the sort of symptoms that we sort of think about anxiety are things like um you know feeling sort of feeling nervous you know, sort of the usual butterflies in the tummy it might be that that person's sort of hyperventilating mm-hmm. um they might have thoughts in their mind of oh something really bad's going to happen to me um they might feel sick or they might actually be sick um, and they may have sort of tingling in their fingers. Um, so there's a whole host of symptoms that come along with feeling anxious. And when you have sort of generalised anxiety, it might be that that's like a background that you, you always feel that mm-hmm. sort of unsettled feeling, that nervy feeling. When you have panic attacks, they're kind of specific discrete episodes of anxiety so they're really time focused so most panic attacks tend to last sort of around sort of five ten minutes Mm -hmm. so typically people that I see might describe you know that they were going out and then suddenly they're hit by this overwhelming sense that something bad's going to happen to them Mm -hmm. they hyperventilate you know which makes them feel even worse they can't catch their breath um they feel lightheaded they feel they're going to pass out they feel sick and they feel that they can't kind of control how intense the physical symptoms are. Mm-hmm. They panic, and actually, then that keeps feeding the um, 
the cycle mm-hmm. um, and what they find is that they have to remove themselves from that situation so it might be when they have a panic attack they have to take themselves off to a quiet space mm-hmm. and to bring themselves down um, it might be that they have to be talked down by someone mm-hmm. and it can be really really frightening some people say you know I, I think I feel like I'm going to die when I'm having mm-hmm. a panic attack um, and even though it lasts only that sort of five ten minutes for some people longer it feels like longer and actually people find that they just feel exhausted you know after they've had the panic attack they feel absolutely shattered mm. and the other thing that people with panic attacks tend to do is avoid situations that they think will bring on the panic attack right. so if they notice that every time they leave the house or every time they go to school they have a panic attack or it might be that they have a panic attack in assembly um they probably they'll end up avoiding what they think triggers the anxiety attack Mm-hmm. And it might not necessarily be down to anything in particular, but again, that avoidance feeds that anxiety. So they mm-hmm. always have this sort of, oh, I don't know if it's going to happen again. And it can be really, really disabling. for Yeah, people. yeah, definitely. So what is it that triggers us in our minds to have this panic attack or have anxiety? What Do you know what it is specifically or is it different for everybody? It can be different for everyone. And I suppose we don't really know um, sort of on a on a sort of biochemical level what what causes anxiety mm-hmm. um it can be things that cause anxiety for us all day to day so it might be things like you know interviews exams but it might be that, that person really struggles to um once they feel anxious it kind of snowballs mm-hmm. um, so i think the answer to that question is no one really knows and actually mm-hmm. from one individual to the next it can be so different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what are your best tips when someone's coming um, to you feeling anxiety, just general anxiety, really? Um, what are your best tips or advice that you give them to kind of try and overcome it? So one of the things that I really like to do is do sort of a mood or anxiety diary. So what I'd like to do, because when I, obviously I don't know this person, the first time I meet them is in clinic, um, or it might be in A&E. Yeah. And it's always helpful to see when the anxiety attacks or when they feel anxious, you know, is. Because mm. um, if they if there's a pattern to it, then it's much easier to kind of work around it and to think where you can break that um, cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first and foremost is having a diary of when, when, does, when does the anxiety happen? Is there a pattern to it? Um, and what sort of avoidance behaviors they're doing so is the anxiety getting in the way of them you know seeing friends or Mm -hmm. going to school going to work and that sort of information is quite key at the first appointment to see how bad the anxiety is yeah Um, and then it might be that they're referred on to a psychologist to do sort of a cbt and it might be that they have eight to ten sessions of sort of behavioral cognitive behavioral therapy which really focuses in on the anxiety, the situations mm. where the anxiety comes about and then how to, to break that pattern and break that cycle. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think what people don't realise is, is ne- they're never the only one going through that. Exactly. And that's why social media is good in some respects because you can talk about your feelings and you can realise that other people are going through the same thing. Yeah. And I think that's something that helped me is just talking about my feelings to my, my loved ones and even friends and stuff like that. Even on social media, it's really helped just get even your feelings out so then you can realise that those feelings are not sometimes they're not even rational and that's it and also you know by having it out there there's less pressure on yourself to kind of keep a lid on it or I can't let people you know know that I'm feeling anxious yeah 
when it kind of explodes is when you know a lot of people that I see try to keep a lid on it because they don't want other people to to see them mm. in that sort of vulnerable position. So I think definitely, I think social media has definitely has its uses when it comes, but I think there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. So I think mm. people need to be careful. Um, but what I would always say is if anyone's concerned that they have anxiety, is that they go see their GP, they don't, they don't mm. hesitate yeah. and they get the support that they need. Yeah, definitely. So can you tell the listeners the difference between, because I know anxiety can make you feel low and it can make you feel a bit down. Can you tell the difference between actually just feeling low and actually being like depressed because I think a lot of people don't know the difference yeah and you're right there does tend to be quite a lot of overlap with anxiety and depression Mm. Um, so yeah you're right you know we can all feel low you know now and again um and I suppose one of the things that we think about um, when we are worried that someone might be depressed is how long that low mood's gone on for actually one of the criteria that we have is if that low mood has kind of gone on longer than two weeks then that kind of gets us thinking about depression so mm-hmm. there's loads of symptoms of depression so low mood is just one of the symptoms um lacking in energy just not interested in things that they used to be enjoyed it used to be interested in so it mm-hmm. might be that someone was a really keen hockey player or really enjoyed going out with friends but actually they seem really down and they're just disinterested they're, mm-hmm. they're making excuses left right and center about why they can't go out with friends um it also is quite powerful depression. It affects things like your sleep and appetite. So yeah. it might be that, that you know, they're not sleeping um, as well. It might be that they're finding it difficult to get off to sleep. Mm-hmm. And when they do get off to sleep, they're waking up several times in the night. And each time they wake up, it's taking them, a, you know, a couple of hours to get back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then they're waking up, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning. Um, it can affect their appetite. So it might be that, um, you know, they feel... Just, just disinterested in food um, they lose their appetite um, and then as a result they lose a lot of weight mm. um, it can go the other way and there are sort of um, reverse patterns where actually people when they're very low might mm. actually go the opposite way and actually increase their appetite and, yeah. and gain weight yeah. um, things like concentration levels so um, particularly with sort of kids that I see it might be that the teachers notice that they're just not focused anymore but mm-hmm. you know they, their grades have fallen down at school college it, at work maybe they're making silly mistakes that they wouldn't have made normally um and things like sort of self-harm so thoughts around self-harm mm-hmm. it might be that they actually are self-harming or if they are a known self-harmer um so self-harm again covers a whole host of things oh, yeah. overdose um, sort of pulling hair there's a lot or banging the head and there's loads of again it's one of those umbrella terms but if mm-hmm. there's an increase in their self-harming um, that can normally be an indicator that their mood is low mm-hmm. and also having sort of suicidal thoughts as well so mm-hmm. thoughts that actually life's not worth living anymore why am I here um, and it might be that they've actually gone as far as planning what they would do to end their life yeah. those are just some of the symptoms of depression some of the ones that we ask about when we when we see someone mm. and if when you compare that to sort of the earlier question that you asked you know we can feel down every now and again but it's looking at the low mood in the context of what's going on yeah so if, if i know you've broken up with someone and you feel low you can understand actually that there's some context behind that yeah there might not necessarily be a reason why that person I think that's a big thing is if you feel down, that's probably because there's a reason because you're feeling down. When If you're actually depressed, sometimes there's no reason. You just have that feeling. Yeah, no, that's, exactly. that's a big thing. 
So when someone comes to you with that, what would you do? Is it just talking and different sort of therapies or do you go sort of the medication route or is it all dependent? So again, it depends on the individual and depends on their age. So if they're um, under 18, um, we would try firstly with the sort of a talking therapy or psychological approach. So it might be that we just monitor that person um, yeah. and refer them on for some talking therapy with a psychologist. Um, but if it's becoming clear that they're just there's just no functioning there and they're really struggling with the talking therapy, it might be that we add an antidepressant in and I would prescribe an antidepressant mm. and monitor that person um, very closely um, whilst they're on the antidepressant. Um, and, you know, there's good, good evidence that actually a combination of having a talking therapy with an antidepressant does help lift people's mood. Yeah. And if they're over 18... Obviously, it would be the same. You know, you'd always try and offer a talking therapy. Sometimes people don't want a talking therapy. You know, yeah. you'll have people that come and say, I don't want to. I, you know, I'd much rather just have the medication. But it's important that you give them that option. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's lots of antidepressants. And obviously, depending on that individual, it would affect which antidepressant we prescribe. Um, and the other thing is that we, as much as possible, we try to avoid prescribing long-term. Yes. So, it might be that actually that person only needs to be on the antidepressant for as long as they get better and then possibly six to 12 months after mm-hmm. um, the time that they got better and then it might be that they stop. For other people, it might be that they're on the medication longer term. So again, it's very much dependent on... on yeah, definitely. Um, Stemming back to eating disorders, I think um, what you talk about a lot is that you don't. a lot of people don't know how like how they developed it and it just comes up so quickly I think your it's like your mindset switches one not just one day but your mindset switches and you kind of turn into someone completely different Mm. um so what are the signs of early like recognition and how do you help someone or make someone realize that they've got a problem they can they can go fix it in terms of an eating disorder yeah yeah so obviously the signs and symptoms there's a bit of overlap with the sort of the three main eating disorders that we see mm. um it's it's really difficult because it's one of those really secretive illnesses yeah and it might be that the parent or friend or you know partner might not even notice there's something going on until that person's lost loads of weight so if we're, if we're looking at anorexia the most obvious is weight loss um and a lot of times it might be not until you know say they go on holiday and it becomes really obvious that they're yeah. weight. Um, it might be that, you know, they're not having periods if, if they're a girl. Um, mm. I'm thinking about signs that other people would notice first. Yeah. Um, but what about yourself? Because sometimes people, they, they don't go out to get an eating disorder. They just kind of, they're not happy with themselves, with their, with their yeah. body. They eat less and less and then they develop an eating disorder. How can someone who has an eating disorder kind of, realize that they have got a problem i think a lot of the time with the people that i see that have an eating disorder it's not necessarily them that come and ask for help and say look no i've got an eating disorder um often they're in that grips of of the illness that it's someone else that would normally yeah get the help for them Mm -hmm. that's the i mean i don't know other doctors might be different but my my personal experience oh yeah yeah always been like a you know a concerned parent or friend that has brought that person sort of under by force essentially to to see yeah. me yeah yeah I think that is that's that's the big thing is 
people don't they don't really want the help and you have to you have, kind of have to be ready to recover but then sometimes you do have to be forced to realize that you need to recover before. and actually what we don't realize is um when you have an eating disorder it affects your cognition it affects your thinking you know that actually they might not be in a state of mind that they are able to even acknowledge they've got a problem yeah or that they want want to work on that problem so it might be that actually as you refeed them and get them on a, a diet plan that's being approved by a dietitian get them seeing a psychiatric nurse regularly getting them weighed regularly I think only then sometimes they get to a state of mind where they think yeah actually I, I did have a problem with food and mm -hmm. actually I am willing to to get mm -hmm. on board with some talking therapy so I think sometimes it's the effect of being malnourished that can affect yeah. yeah and the longer that you are like that the worse it could get and the harder it is to going to be to recover from yeah because actually the figures with eating disorders it might have changed but we were always told that a third of um sufferers say from anorexia will recover a third will kind of relapse and sort of keep yeah. coming back with problems with anorexia and a third will will die as a result of that anorexia so it's a really serious um yeah and a lot of people don't realize how serious it is they just think yeah. it's they just want to eat less because they i don't know they just don't they don't like how they look so they're just going to eat a bit less kind of a lot of people think it's for attention but yeah. it is a lot lot deeper than that absolutely and that's why it's really important as a child psychiatrist you kind of go back to that early history were they bullied yeah exactly Even simple things what's fam what did family meal times look like or was their mum always on a diet you know exactly. kind of all that yeah. sort of stuff's really important and kind of gives you a bit of context behind it especially when when you're younger you soak up everything your environment you soak everything up so if your mum's constantly on a diet or constantly talking about her body or talking about the food that she's eating then that kind of soaks into you and realizes right i need to be thinking like that as well because yeah. when you're younger, you always want to be like your mum. So you're like, right, I need to be like my mum. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I've got a little girl myself. So, and I'm conscious that I'm, when I look in the mirror, I'm sort of like, you know, pinching myself, just looking mm -hmm. at you. And I just think I try to avoid doing that in front of her because I don't want mm -hmm. her to think, you know, actually, oh, mum's not very, mum's not comfortable with her own skin. Yeah. I can't be comfortable with my own skin. Yeah. Um, so it is making sure that when you, as a role model, you're positive role modeling. Definitely, definitely. Now, I wanted to touch on something that affects a lot of people as well, which is kind of sometimes due to the anxiety that we get. And that is sleep, because a lot, a lot of people do suffer from bad sleep. And yeah. um, probably because maybe due to work life, we can't switch off um, and other reasons like that. But why is it that we can't sleep and can't turn off? Is there, and is there any ways that you have for getting a good night's sleep? So sleep is one of those ones that I constantly get asked about. And it might be that actually the first time I see someone, it's because they have problems with their sleep. Yeah, and a lot of the time they want something prescribed to help with their sleep but wherever possible I do avoid prescribing any sort of medication for sleep obviously there's a time and a place for it but I think you need to start simple and you know back to basics because actually we're in a, a generation of screen addicts and mm -hmm. you know I'm awful for it you know mm -hmm. I'm, I'm on my phone constantly up until you know 10 half 10 at night I'm mm -hmm. in front of my laptop tablet watching tv um, so what I tend to ask is what does that what does that person's bedtime routine look like mm -hmm. so you know if they are going out until late and they're coming back and they're on the phone and you know they're watching tv they are drinking tea and coffee until late mm -hmm. um, that they change their bedtime from one day to the next I'd say that they need to kind of clean up their sleep so mm -hmm. we there's a lot of them 
people that talk about sleep hygiene and that's really important because it's about um, making sure that when you do go to bed you go to the bed the same time every night mm-hmm. and you wake up the same time each morning regardless of whether it's a weekday or weekend because I think sometimes people say oh you know Monday to Friday that's when it's really important that I get my early nights in get up yeah. on time go to work school wherever you've got to go and then actually on the weekend I can have a lie-in I can go till late but actually if you think how exhausted you feel come Monday morning because mm-hmm. you've let it slip for those two days that can have a knock-on impact for the rest of your week so okay. the first thing I'd say is pick your bedtime and stick to it the other thing is cut down on caffeine and caffeine's everywhere and everyone seems to be obsessed with these energy <laughs> drinks yeah. I, you know I see kids walking to school with energy drinks in their hand and you just think that's pumped full of sugar mm-hmm. caffeine um and the same with sort of tea and tea and coffee and it becomes a social thing about sort of having yeah, yeah. You know, a nice warm cuppa on an evening i'd say switch to decaf if you can mm-hmm. avoid energy drinks like the plague that's what that would be my advice because mm-hmm. i just think i don't think there's any nutritional benefit in them that's my my personal mm-hmm. opinion um and then just switch it for decaf or you know sort of chamomile green teas fruit teas that sort of thing mm-hmm. um and then having a cutoff for your screen so if you're obsessed with your phone obsessed with your laptop tablet it's not realistic for me to say cut it out completely in the evening mm-hmm. but what i would say is an hour before bed have a no no screen time um and just basically go old school read a book read a magazine mm-hmm. you know your bedroom should just be for sleeping yes. so um making sure that actually your environment allows you to get a good night's sleep so if you've got screens blaring in your face it's going to keep your mind active it's never going to tell you to switch off mm-hmm. so those would be my top three tips is regular bedtime regular wake-up time um no caffeine um sort of i would say cut out if you have to have something later on in the afternoon i'd say get 5 p.m the cut off for any caffeine yeah, switch to decaf after and cut your screens an hour before bed yeah definitely do you have any um would you recommend any like herbal supplements like i know sometimes people take like magnesium before bed do you yeah. have any supplements that are good for um getting a good night's sleep um i don't know myself but as a doctor i don't it's not one of those things that i um we've been taught to sort of prescribe or yeah. what to advise on mm-hmm. um i suppose there's other people that can kind of answer those questions probably better than i could mm-hmm. but t- i think sleep hygiene is more powerful than people give it credit for definitely yeah and i think you can do it naturally it's just your body loves routine and i think getting into routine of doing the same thing just like you would in your day-to-day life that is your whole life is a routine why can't you make your sleep a routine as well absolutely absolutely yeah and i think as well as sleep if you don't have a good night's sleep that affects your energy throughout the day as well and a lot of people do suffer with lack of energy and is that the main reason why we suffer lack of energy or is there another reason as well I think um, sleep can be a huge factor mm-hmm. um, and so I'd always you know ask yourself actually do you feel rested um, yeah because your energy could be down to simply just not having had a decent night I know you know when I've come back from holiday and it might be a long haul flight and I feel exhausted and I just think I've got no energy to do anything and then I've mm-hmm. got to be at work the next day and it's kind of a, a struggle to get yourself moving on a morning so I think sleep's a huge factor Mm-hmm. I think also, um, I think 
phys- making sure that you rule out anything physically wrong with yourself. So how's your health generally? Because yeah. um, actually we know, you know, when you get a cold, um, you know, even when you get a migraine, you know, it knocks out of you and you just don't yeah. have the energy to do anything. So you're thinking about your physical health. Um, and obviously there's mental health reasons why you might struggle with the energy and depression is just one of those um, yeah. as well. So I think it's kind of, there could be a number of reasons, but I think the thing that I get people to check is firstly things like sleep, making sure that they're physically well, if they're concerned at all to, to go to their GP and actually if they're concerned about the mental health, because obviously we don't think low energy, that person must be depressed. We look at it in the context of what else is going on. Yeah. I'd always say seek advice from a healthcare professional or your GP if you're worried at all about yeah. your health I think uh, stress will affect that as a lot because yeah. stress takes up a lot of energy in your mind and your body. So yeah. if stress, that can affect how you feel. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually just thinking about ways to unwind um, and making sure that you do things like you eat well you you know do regular exercise and actually that all can help with energy levels and help you feel less stressed as well yeah definitely definitely now i like to end the podcast with like the same sort of question and that is kind of what is one of your good habits and one of the bad habits that you do every day so one of my good habits whenever i try to actually is i because i have a little little girl i used to pre having her I used to be one of these people that used to go to the gym first thing on the morning. Mm-hmm. So I used to be the one at the door at six o'clock in the morning before work. But then since having her, that kind of, you know, it couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I've actually started doing is I set my alarm, which I'm, it's mad, I know, but quarter past five every morning. Wow. And I do a home workout. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've just got some free weights. Um, I saved up my pennies and got a, a spin bike as well. Mm-hmm. So I just do a quick blast on the spin bike, a few weights. Um, just before my husband and my little girl get up. So I think that's one of my good habits that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I don't really drink that much alcohol either. So I, I try to kind of avoid drinking um, too much alcohol. Um, and I drink a lot of water as well. Mm-hmm. And what about a bad habit? Bad habit, um, I've got an awful sweet tooth. And I think, <laughs> mm-hmm. actually, if I didn't do the exercise, the drinking water, if I didn't have a toddler to run around, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, so I think it's all about balance at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. actually, I know, because I've got up, because I've done a workout, because I'm moving a lot more with having my little girl, actually, I can, I can have that slab mm-hmm. of chocolate cake or, or whatever it is, I fancy bag. And I bring my husband down with me. So he, before he met me, he wasn't really fussed by sweet treats and now it's like oh what are you baking tonight or what are we having tonight and it's just all yeah we um we're bad influenced on each other <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on to the podcast oh you're welcome thank you for having me great. i've really enjoyed it great thank so, you oh before we finish can you just tell everybody where they can find you on social media and maybe where they can find your practice to, to find help as well yep so um on in terms of practice, um, I, I work for the NHS, so I don't actually offer any sort of individual sessions. But what I would say, if there's anything in what I've said that you're concerned about or that's sort of wrong true, is go, don't hesitate, go and see your GP. That's the sort of the first advice I'd give. Um, and secondly, in terms of where to find me, I do a lot of sort of educational videos and I'm really passionate about getting people to spot signs of mental distress early. Um, and signposting them on to get help so um or t- or telling them to go and get help from a gp so i speak in very sort of general terms um i'm on instagram i'm at the mind medic on instagram um, and i've also got a website www.themindmedic.co.uk perfect well thank you so much um, you're welcome
Thank you so much for listening. Um, just to let you know, I'll be posting all my podcasts on YouTube, SoundCloud and iTunes, which are just Thrive by Hannah Felicity and on my blog, which is hannahfelicity.com. If you like this podcast, please give it a review on iTunes. Any feedback is greatly appreciated. Also, if you have any ideas um, of future content you'd like to see or hear, um, please drop me a message on my Instagram at hannah underscore felicity underscore Edwards. Thanks for listening.